this rose is celebrating a, the birth of a new baby in our congregation, new family in our congregation too. And Crosby is only six days old and he's already here. I saw him in the back. Uh, of course, he is in a car seat, but he is here nevertheless. Um, also, this morning, I saw Phil Taylor in the office and I reminded him that he reads one of the passages tonight. He said, well, I might not be here because my wife is having contractions. Phil, you might not want to be here right now. You might want to go home. So anyways, I don't see him, so uh, I'm assuming uh, that maybe things are happening there. We should be praying for Emily Taylor, hopefully today. I know she would love today to be the day. Praise God for these babies and these families. This morning I begin a four-week series, and we'll return to the exposition of Genesis, Lord willing, right after this. But for these four weeks of Advent, I have carved out uh, some sermons for you that I hope are encouraging to you and focus you all the more on the person of Christ. That's what Advent's about, the gift of Jesus Christ to us. The fact that he came and did his work as God gave him to do for us assures us that he will come again. So this Advent season isn't only about looking back at what has been done, it's that, but it's also knowing for sure what is still to come in the consummation of all things in Jesus Christ. It's the It's a renewed focus on the preeminence of Jesus, we might say, as we consider this particular season. About 30 years ago or so, I went into a jeweler. I'd never been into a jeweler before, but I was buying an engagement ring. And I went into the jeweler, uh, told the guy my price ahead of time because I was real nervous about what he might show me. At any rate, he put out a, a black piece of velvet and brought out several stones, different shapes and sizes. And he told me that when you're looking at stones, you want to uh, look at the clarity, the cut, the color, the carrots, all those things. And that's how you kind of determine how, how valuable they are. They all look beautiful to me. And he got a tweezer and he would hold the diamond. He'd see the beauty of that stone and then he'd tilt it to one side and you'd see a different perspective on that same beauty. But it was, it was different. It looked different from that angle. They turned it over and it would be pretty from that angle as well, sparkling in just the way the edges um, the light reflected the edges. You could see it all different as he would tilt the diamond in different ways. Beautiful stone. Well, Jesus Christ is far more beautiful than any diamond that we could ever examine. But it's true of him also that when you see him in all his beauty, from different perspectives, as you look at what he has done for us, you see all sorts of, of his attributes, all sorts of his qualities, all sorts of his, the benefits we receive from who he is, being in union with him. And so I want to look at some different angles on the person of Jesus Christ over these four weeks. Because the true gift of this season is the gift of Jesus Christ for us. But with Christ come several different gifts that I want to highlight. The first this morning will be the gift of forgiveness we receive through Christ. This is, in my opinion, the most important of all the gifts that we receive through Christ. But secondly, next week, Lord willing, we'll look at the gift of adoption that we are received as God's children. It's true that we've been legally cleared because of Christ, forgiven, but we also have a sense of belonging as the children of God, grafted into his family. The gift of adoption gives us this sense of belonging and closeness and security with God. This is a gift that Christ gives us. Third, I want to focus on the true riches that we receive from Christ. In modern, the modern era, in our time and space, celebrations can focus too much on material stuff during this time. That should not distract Christians during this season from knowing and appreciating 
the incredible spiritual wealth, the eternal wealth we have in Christ. The riches of Christ are the greatest riches in the universe, and they're gifted to us, and we'll reflect on that gift, the true gift of Christ. Finally, in Christ and through Christ, we receive true light. God has shed his light through Christ so that we can know who we are, why we are here, and what God has for us to do. We gain the light of purpose through Christ's coming. We've been given the gift of light through Christ, who is the light. Now, for this first week of Advent, I will begin by reading Matthew 1, a good place to start. And our special focus will be on a statement made in verse 21, so pay close attention as we come there. This is God's holy word, Matthew 1, 18 through 25. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place this way. When his mother Mary had betrothed to Joseph, been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Lord, we cherish an appointed time to reflect on the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is not mere sentimentality to us. This is a necessary pause from time to time to remember and consider how our lives are ordered by what Jesus came and did for us. I pray, O Lord, for these four weeks of sermons focusing on several key biblical doctrines, gifts that you've given to us. You've given these gifts to us through the person of Christ and his finished work, gifts that are mediated to us by your Holy Spirit. Father, encourage my brothers and sisters here gathered. And for the one who may not yet know your forgiveness in Christ, please bring them to the knowledge of their need for him. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I think it's important from the onset when speaking of the gift of forgiveness that we receive, that's what we're focusing on. The first part of that gift, though, is acknowledging that we need forgiveness in the first place. We should not take this for granted. It's not something we know naturally. To know that we are sinners who have offended a holy God is in itself an incredible gift. Many people, maybe even most people, deny this need. They're not that bad. I'm not that bad. Don't focus on that, someone might say, when we start to give the Christian gospel. Just knowing that we are sinners under God's condemnation, though, isn't enough. You have to begin there, though. That's the beginning point. In a sense, I assume that for this audience. You have to agree that condemnation, just condemnation, is our starting point. 
you know, there are a great many reasons that people might cite about how they came to know Christ or became interested in Jesus. For me personally, it was unquestionably due to a guilt that I felt from as long as early as I can remember, I felt guilty for my sin. We were a religious family, went to church every week. Um, I believed in God, but I was scared of God. I was sure that I deserved anything he would give me for the sins that I've committed, and even the sins that I didn't even acknowledge but knew I committed. I was under God's wrath, and I knew it from the earliest of ages I can remember. I remember sitting in church where I went to church as a youngster, and they had stations of the cross, pictures of the process of the crucifixion of Jesus. And I remember sitting next to the, in the balcony, right to my right, was the picture of Jesus being nailed to the cross. And I can't explain to you exactly how I understood this, but I was sure that I was the reason for his suffering. Now, I didn't accept it as payment. I didn't accept it as my substitute. I just felt guilty for what I had done concerning it. I would go to the priest to confess my sins on a regular basis, but the same thing would always happen. In that confessional, I would always minimize my sins, either on purpose by lying about the sins or the extremeness of the sins that I committed, or as soon as I got out, I'd remember a whole bunch that I left out. I always felt incomplete. I always felt unforgiven. I would feel worse than when I went in. I never had any sense of surety about my sins being forgiven. And confessing what I could remember to the priest never did anything but make things worse for me. He would tell me to pray several prayers. I would go to the nearest bathroom or room and I would pray the prayers and never felt any different. I had a massive load of sin on my back and I knew it was real, it was true. It wasn't a figment of my imagination. The thing is many people don't even know that such a load exists. But it does, it bears us down. Sometime in my teen years, Someone gave me a book called Pilgrim's Progress, and I remember reading it. By that time, I had trusted in Christ, but I've never found anything that did such a good job describing the sense that I had in coming to Christ and the burden that was lifted. I think it's the most vivid picture painted outside of what the Scripture paints. This is John Bunyan's work of the 17th century. He's describing a pilgrim who's trying to make progress towards salvation to figure out salvation. And Pilgrim, whose name is Christian, is a metaphor for how this unfolds. He knows he needs salvation because he has this heavy burden on his back that's crushing him. It will kill him eventually, and he knows it. So he sets out on a journey to try to find spiritual progress. Of course, the load on his back, the literal load on his back, a huge pack strapped to him, not a comfortable backpack, Think more of some massive load that can barely, you can barely stand up straight. And it symbolizes a sin as well as the guilt and dread of God's condemnation that accompanies carrying this load of sin. His burden is what prompts him to seek salvation. It's so heavy. It defines everything he does. He has to make a choice about anything he does or anywhere he progresses because he can only do so much with this terrible, debilitating burden that he's carrying. It's so impactful and defining to everything he tries to do. Is that how you feel about your sin when you look at it honestly? When you analyze the depth of sin and the condemnation that you justly deserve? During these early stages, uh, or the early stages of Christian's pilgrimage, the burden on his back keeps slowing him, slowing him even more to the point of bringing him to the slough of despond or despondency where he's depressed. 
A real depression accompanies the bearing of the sin burden. And Christian symbolizes this as he slips into that depression. As he moves along, different characters, they come out and try to warn him of the dangers ahead if he keeps on this pilgrimage. Uh, They try to give him other ways to relieve his burden. But Christian is undeterred. He knows that whatever the case, this burden will kill him if he doesn't find salvation. There's nothing more important than relief from this burden that's on his back. When he heads out to his journey, his wife and children try to stop him and listen to what he says. He had not run far from his own door before his wife and children, having seen it, began to cry after him to return. But the man put his fingers in his ears and ran on crying, life, life, eternal life. So not turning to look behind him, he fled toward the middle of the plain. The weight of our sin is so much to bear if we're honest about it. I realize most people in the world today ignore it, redefine it, numb it, explain it away. But in the quietness of our hearts, especially as God draws you to himself, you'll know the truth about the burden of sin that you bear. Our sin condemns us, and eventually it will kill us. Scripture says so, and it's an eternal promise. It says in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. God's gift of forgiveness is the lifting of the just sentence of condemnation upon us for our sins because of Christ. Let's answer a few questions. What is forgiveness? How do we get this forgiveness? And how does having this forgiveness shape our lives, shape our purpose, you might say? Well, first of all, I said at the very beginning, and I think it'll be easy to prove, that forgiveness is the greatest gift we receive from Christ. Very plainly and clearly, it's God lifting that burden I've been talking about that I hope you felt the weight of yourself, lifting it from you taking it from you, removing it from you. That's what forgiveness is. More technically, it's the lifting of the just sentence of condemnation for our sins, and it's placed somewhere else, on someone else, and dealt with. This is why the psalmist says, when looking at the salvation that God gives to his children, in the psalmist's day, it was looking forward to the coming of Christ to do this. And the psalmist says in the 32nd Psalm, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. What a blessing it is to have the burden taken off your back. We all need to have our burden of sin lifted. We all need this forgiveness. Nothing else matters unless we can have the burden taken off our backs. The weight of our sin keeps us from doing a great many amazing things. The weight of our sin will eventually crush us. The wages, the payment, the results of sin is death. We can't live life to the fullest with this weight of sin on us. Here's how Bunyan describes pilgrim or Christian at the beginning of the story. I saw a man dressed in rags, standing in a certain place and facing away from his house. He's about ready to head out. He had a book in his hand and a great burden on his back. As I looked, I saw him open the book and read read out of it. And as he read it, he wept and trembled. Unable to contain himself any longer, he broke out with a sorrowful cry saying, What shall I do? What do I do to get rid of this burden? Pilgrim, at that time, says. Pilgrim knew 
The book was telling the truth about his situation. He felt the burden of sin on his back. In the story, this literal pack strapped to him, as one commentator said, in modern terms, it'd be like have a, a VW minivan strapped to your back. He knew that he needed to have this burden relieved. It meant everything. Understanding forgiveness starts with knowing why we need to be forgiven, and it comes to us in the person, the just, the justifier, the one who is the standard bearer, God the just and holy sovereign over all. He's the righteous judge who is entirely fair all the time and deals with us exactly as we ought to be dealt with. And because Pilgrim knows this, he feels the burden all the more. You remember when we were studying in Genesis 18, and Abraham was praying for God to stay his hand of judgment on Sodom, that there would just be a few righteous people there. And as he's crying out to God, he's thinking to himself, there's got to be a few righteous people here that I could convince God to not bring this condemnation upon them if I could just show him that there's some righteous people there. But listen to what Abraham says, which really shows he understands something He understands something of the character of God that's necessary for us all. He says in Genesis 18, Far be it from you to do such a thing, speaking to God about this judgment, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Certainly you won't do this, God. Far be it from you. But then he says something very important that defines what underlies his prayer. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And Abraham had his sense about what he wanted, but he knew in the end that God would do what is just. He was scared that justice could be condemnation, but he still knew it would be just if God did it. This is a correct understanding of who God is and who we are. Whatever we feel about it, whatever our sense of of what, what is fair is, the God of the universe does what's just, and he says that his condemnation is upon sin. What is sin? Well, very simply, it's a lack of conforming to what he tells us to do, and it's also outwardly disobeying what he tells us to do. It could be stuff we don't do. It could be stuff we do. It's so pervasive. We say this, and it's not funny, but you know what I mean when I say, as bad as you think you can be and count up all your sins, if I give you five minutes to count the sins you committed in the last week, whatever you came up with, you would have undercounted exponentially. It's way worse than we even think. The burden's actually heavier than we can imagine. Sin is transgressing God's law and thought, word, and deed. And Romans says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's not just doing something wrong or immoral, by the way. It's something more than that. It's not just the things we do against each other that are mistakes or missteps or wrongs. It's Beyond the person we commit this against, this has to do with committing sin against God. In fact, back to Genesis, in the case of Joseph, when he was in Potiphar's household, rescued out of bondage, put into this place where he could be a servant at the highest level, shown great affection by Potiphar and trust, and there he is in the household, and Potiphar's wife tries to seduce him. Joseph, like Abraham, shows real knowledge about the character of God in all of this. It says, after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. He has put everything that he has kept in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am. 
nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. And this is a key perspective. How then, Joseph says, can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Yes, the sin would be against Potiphar and Potiphar's wife, for sure. But ultimately, he recognizes about sin that it's all an offense against God. That's what makes it so heavy and the burden so great. The psalmist, David, in chapter 51, or Psalm 51, speaking after he has been caught in adultery with Bathsheba, he said, For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, God, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Now, it's not that he didn't sin against Uriah or Bathsheba, but the ultimate offense to sin is upon the God of the universe, the great God, the true and living God. That's the burden of our sins that needs forgiveness. So the forgiveness that we need is because our sin is against God. For us to be forgiven for our sin, there has to be a saving payment. Someone has to satisfy God's requirement for righteousness on our behalf because we can't. Someone has to be worthy to make payment for our sin, a payment that God would accept. We need someone to appease God's righteous judgment. And Jesus Christ is that one. He is that Savior. He saves us from having to receive that. This is why Jesus is the Messiah. Messiah means the anointed one. Christ is the Greek translation for Messiah, the anointed one. Jesus or Yeshua, Joshua, means salvation. Jesus Christ means the anointed one to save, the anointed Savior. He saves us from our sins. He's the one who gives us the forgiveness we need. He's the one who lifts the burden completely off our backs. This is what makes Matthew one twenty one really stand out, especially every Advent season. I pause on this verse because it's so profound, so simple, but so profound. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He doesn't say he will save his people from the Romans. That's nothing. He will save his people from their sins. Forgiveness is the lifting of the just sentence of condemnation upon us for our sins because of Christ. So we've seen what forgiveness is. Now, how do we receive that forgiveness? How do you claim this gift? The day after Thanksgiving, I got an email from every place I've ever bought something from. This is how you claim this gift, they would say. Take this QR code into this store. Punch, go to this site, punch in this code. Respond to this email. Print off this coupon and bring it here. And you could redeem this special gift. You know, come in and get your gift and then, hey, look around while you're here, right? But the point is, how do I claim this? What do I got to do to get this? The forgiveness that Jesus Christ provides does not come with any difficulty or strings attached. It is easy to access. We simply need to believe on Christ 
and his work accomplished on the cross as the payment for your sins. That's it. Now, you must believe you're a sinner to appreciate who the Savior is. But I don't want to overcomplicate the pure gospel. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. That's how the burden is lifted. Now, it's interesting um, for all the complexities of a church like ours. You might see with our doctrinal statements and the way we do things in an orderly way, we do care about precision and things. We like some complexities. We're not going to lie about it. We won't even apologize for it. But when we ask a person who's coming to become a member at Redeemer, as the elders meet and interview everybody that comes to be a member, we only ask them one question. We have a follow-up, but it's not the basis for them becoming members. But there is one question that does become the basis for them becoming members. Who is Jesus Christ to you? Now, you might suppose you would hear an answer like this. Well, the Lord Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God. Of one substance and equal with the Father, in the fullness of time he became man, and so was and continues to be God and man in two entire distinct natures in one person forever. Great answer, but it's not the one we're actually looking for. One might say to the, answer the question, who is Jesus Christ? Christ is the Son of God, became man by taking to himself a true body and a reasonable soul, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary, of her substance and born of her, yet without sin. All true, but still not what we're really looking for. Maybe someone might say in such an interview, Jesus is the Son of God, the second person in the Trinity, being very and eternal God of one substance and equal with the Father. He did when the fullness of time came, Take upon man's nature with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof. Yet without sin be conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary of her substance. So that the two whole perfect and distinct natures of the Godhood and the manhood were inseparably joined together in one person. Right answer about Jesus, but that's not the answer we're looking for. Someone might say Jesus is the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God of God, light of light, true God from true God. Yes, we say that once a month in the church. That's true. You're not wrong. But who is Jesus Christ? This is the answer. He is my Savior. That's the answer. That's the forgiveness of sins. That's the greatest gift we could have. This is a statement of belief. This is a statement that reflects rest in the forgiveness of Christ. This is a statement of faith. Jesus is my Savior. I need saving. When I say he's my Savior, I must need saving. I know that. From what? My sin. Why? Because I have God's just judgment upon me. It's right that he'd have. So someone has to save me, and Jesus is the one who God has sent to save me. He's my Savior. Now, for the more complex answer the apostle Paul says and the answer I gave is in the gospels itself and then Paul unpacks this a bit Romans chapter 3 verse 22 listen to how Paul describes it how we receive this is by belief by faith in Christ by trusting in him Paul says the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe so we gain that righteousness by believing on Christ our sins are forgiven and we acquire Christ's righteousness in our place. For there is no distinction, he says. 
all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation or a payment by his blood to be received by faith. So you receive this forgiveness by believing on Christ, by trusting in Christ. It's the instrument, faith is the instrument that God uses to unite us together to Christ. Back to Pilgrim in his progress, or Christian now. He goes along his way. Various characters try to convince him of other ways to get rid of that huge burden on his back. And none of their suggestions work. Some will say, you've got to be more moral. Be better. But that doesn't work. You've got to be less caring about sin. Forget about sin. But that doesn't work either. Finally, in a climactic moment, Pilgrim comes to the cross of Christ. Now I saw in my dream, Bunyan describes, that the highway, the highway up which Christian was to go was fenced on either side with a wall, and the wall was called salvation. He quotes Isaiah. In that day shall this song be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. Salvation will, will God appoint for walls and bulwarks. Up this way, therefore, did burden Christian run. You can see him running with its, this weight on his back, but not without great difficulty because of the load on his back. He ran thus till he came at a place somewhat ascending, and upon that place stood a cross, and a little below at the bottom a sepulcher. So I saw in my dream that just as Christian came up to the cross, his burden loosed from his shoulders and fell from off his back and began to tumble. And so continued to do till it came to the mouth of the sepulcher where it fell in, and I saw it no more. Then was Christian, Christian glad and lightsome. Are you lightsome? If your burden's been taken off your back, you're lightsome. Christian was glad and lightsome and said with a merry heart, he hath given me rest by his sorrow and life by his death. Then he stood still a while to look and wonder. The burden's off his back. He's standing straight. For it was very surprising to him that the sight of the cross should thus ease him of his burden. He looked, therefore, and looked again, and looked even more, even till the springs that were in his head sent water down its cheeks, his cheeks. Now, as he stood looking and weeping, behold, three shining ones came to him and saluted him. They said, Peace be to thee. So the first said to him, Thy sins be forgiven thee. This is the essence of what the Apostle Paul speaks of when he writes to the Ephesians opening in the opening verses. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him, Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of God's grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he sent forth in Christ. Do you have a sense of being lightsome when you hear that your sins have been forgiven in Christ? Well, there are at least four ways in which this understanding of forgiveness 
keeps giving us to us. It shapes our lives. The first benefit from forgiveness is that we grow deeper in our worship of God. We're compelled to worship Him in a way that could not be done if we did not fully appreciate what we've been forgiven. This is why the psalmist says in Psalm 103, a psalm we actually use quite a bit here in our service, Bless the Lord, O my soul. Worship God in all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits. But what's the first benefit the psalmist says? Bless the Lord, O my soul, forget not all His benefits, who forgives some of your iniquity. That's not what it says. Who forgives all your iniquity. Worship Him because He forgives all of your sins. We come to worship God as those forgiven. We worship because we are forgiven. In fact, I think you come here on a regular basis to be reminded that you are forgiven. And that's what you should be. That should be part of why you're coming here. You want to worship God, but you've got to be reminded of why you can approach God. Because he's forgiven you. Even the reason you come to worship God has been given by him, which produces more worship. There's a second benefit, though. This has to do with our ongoing need for forgiveness. Not saving forgiveness as Christians, but you know and I know we still sin. Yet Christ has paid for those sins. Sins you have not yet committed, that you'll commit in an hour, Christ has paid for. But it's insofar as our fellowship with our Father in heaven, there is the requirement that we be confessing our sins. And we can do so with a surety that those sins have been provided for. We know this. We believe this. And so though God knows these sins, we confess them outwardly to him, sometimes corporately in our prayers, but privately we confess our sins to our Lord. And this is what John is capturing in his first epistle. His gospel, John, but then he wrote three epistles. In his first one, listen to what he says. He's talking to Christians. He says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Then immediately he says, my little children, so he's talking to believers, I am writing these things so that you may know that you may not sin. So the more you understand that God has forgiven you and you're open about your struggle with sin, you will actually find that to deter further sin, not unto perfection. But if you're honest about your sin, if you say it to God, sometimes you have to say it to somebody else, this will be used of God to help you refrain from further sin. That's one of the benefits of this forgiveness we know is our, we know when we sin, he will not cast us off. He's faithful and just to forgive us because of Christ. That is one of the only things I have found helps me win over sin, to know this truth. That's why he says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, John says, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. We're called to a life of confession of sin because we know of the forgiveness we have in Christ. The third benefit I will point out to you, this is a profound benefit to the church. It has application to individual believers for sure. But to the church, this understanding of the forgiveness of sins that's been made clear in the Scriptures, this gives us purpose. We are ministers 
of reconciliation. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. He's talking to the Corinthian church now. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. This is a Christian message, a Christian gospel. Not counting their trespasses against them, entrusting to us then the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. He's talking about the church. So the church gets marching orders from the doctrine of forgiveness. The reality of forgiveness, the way it's been described, it defines the ministry of the church. The mission of the church is very simple, to gather and perfect the saints. How so? How is that done? By the preaching of this gospel, the gospel of the forgiveness of sins through Christ. That's the main thing we've got to offer. Yes, we should be about charity. Anyone born again is going to care about those who are wanting and needing. We should be about this. Yes, we should be about good morals and good causes in the world. We should be clear and speak concerning various social and ethical issues as the Scripture lays them out and we see the culture going another way. We should speak to those. And individual believers have all sorts of freedom to jump in and be active in all those ways. But these efforts are not our primary calling. Many organizations can offer charity. Many organizations can and do uphold good morals. Many organizations are actively promoting biblical responses to the issues of the day. But only one entity can clearly deliver what many of these cannot or do not. How to be right with God through Christ. The reality of the forgiveness of sins, this defines the mission of the church. We are the ones entrusted with this ministry of reconciliation. We are to be his witnesses to the end of the earth, no matter what happens. This is why Jesus says before he ascends, in the book of Luke as it's recorded, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Now they get the fullness of what the Old Testament was saying, and he's, he's training them in those days. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. The thing he commissions the church to do isn't fix everything that's wrong and broken with the world. Now we hope that Christian activism will help with that, but the church's call is to preach this message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. It should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, he says. Behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. We have clear definition, simple definition about the message and the mission that the church should be about and never veer from. Finally, the last benefit I'll mention about forgiveness. Our forgiveness reflects most vividly in how we get along with each other as fellow believers. How we forgive one another directly demonstrates our understanding of the gospel itself. This is why in Colossians, Paul says, put on then his God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. And here's the key to this benefit. 
as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. Well, you can never forgive like God's forgiven. Sort of like when Jesus washes their feet and says, do as your master has done. We can never emulate. That's the point, though. He set that bar. Now we can forgive one another. And I would submit to you that when the people of God had this kind of patience with one another, love for one another, actually forgive one another, we most demonstrate what's so special about God changing our hearts. And that necessarily sends a message to a watching world that doesn't know anything about real forgiveness. You see how the world is. You're a hero until we can find a reason to cancel you or crush you. We love you, we hate you. We really want you to fall. That's not to be among the people of God. In this kind of selflessness that we can show towards one another, because we're secure in the forgiveness, the ultimate forgiveness we have received, we can then also forgive others. Make no mistake, our biggest problem is a load of sin that we bear, and God's gift of forgiveness is the lifting of his just sentence of condemnation upon us. It's upon us for our sins. But he takes it because of Christ. There's a point in the Pilgrim's Progress where Christian meets the devil figure who's, been tr- who's trying to accuse him of his unfaithfulness, to prove to him because his life doesn't match up with righteousness in all ways that he must not really be saved. That's what happens to believers. They, they sin and they think, well, these sins that I've committed show I'm not really a believer. No, what would show you're not really a believer is you don't repent of those sins. You don't confess those sins. You're going to struggle with sin. So here comes Apollyon, this figure who's trying to condemn Christian responds to some of his accusations. He says, wherein, O Apollyon, have I been unfaithful to him? Apollyon says, you have already been unfaithful to him, and I see by the mud on your clothes. You almost choked in the slough of despond. You attempted wrong ways to be rid of your burden. You slept and lost your role. You almost went back at the sight of the lions. And when you talk about your young days and what you saw and heard, You like to have praise for it all yourself. Christian responds, All this is true, and much more which you have left out. But the prince whom I serve, the prince whom I honor, is merciful and ready to forgive. Besides, these sins possess me in your country. I have groaned under them, been sorry for them, but now have obtained pardon from my prince." Now we can better appreciate what the psalmist said in the 32nd Psalm. Blessed is the one or the ones whose transgressions have been forgiven, whose sin has been covered. Let's pray. Lord, we worship you with all that is within us. We bless your holy name. We adore you, Lord Jesus, and we forget not all your benefits. You who forgives all our iniquities, who heals all our diseases, who redeems our lives from the pit, who crowns us with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies us with good so that our youth is renewed like the eagles. Praise be to you for your inexpressible gift of the forgiveness of sins through Christ, in whose name I pray, amen.